Hi there. Um, my name is Gina Smilik, and I cover the Federal Reserve and the economy at the New York Times. I am really excited to join you all today, along with a great panel, to discuss digital currencies um, and the state and market's role in those currencies. You know, had you told me three years ago that digital currency would emerge as a major topic for the Federal Reserve in particular, I would have been a serious skeptic. Um, but news of Facebook's Libra, especially the project's formal announcement back in June 2019, dramatically accelerated research and innovation in this area. Um, afraid of falling behind the time, central banks have rushed to explore whether they ought to be developing their own digital currencies and how they can oversee whatever options the private sector offers. Um, today, we'll be exploring whether there is a theoretical case for central bank digital currencies because they would improve welfare in ways that private digital currencies cannot. To discuss this important topic, we have a broadly experienced panel from across international financial agencies and academia with us. Tobias Adrian is the financial counselor and director of the Monetary and Capital Markets Department at the International Monetary Fund. Prior to joining the IMF, he was a senior vice president at of, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and associate director of the research and statistics group there. Nehenarula is the director of the Digital Currency Initiative, a part of the MIT Media Lab focused on cryptocurrencies and blockchain. Lawrence White is professor of economics at George Mason University and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. And Eswar Prasad is a professor of trade policy and economics at Cornell. He is also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He was formerly the head of the IMF's China division. For our structure today, um, each panelist is going to go ahead and give a roughly 12 to 15 minute presentation, after which I will be asking a few questions. You can also um, submit questions, which I will then relay to the panelists. You can do that via hashtag CatoMonCon, um, so hashtag C-A-T-O-M-O-N-C-O-N, on Facebook, Twitter, and on YouTube. Um, and with that, we'll go ahead and get to it. Dr. Adrian, if you could go ahead and start us off. Yeah, thanks so much. It's, uh, it's my pleasure to be in this uh, very uh, interesting and important conference. Uh, to kick it off, I'm going to share my screen and, uh, and use some slides uh, uh, to facilitate uh, my uh, presentation. So uh, we are going to talk about uh, CBDCs, uh, central bank digital currencies, and I will focus particularly on the role of the public uh, versus the private sector in this area. So this is, uh, this is work uh, with colleagues uh, at the IMF, particularly Tommaso Mancini. So let's, let's start where we are today. Uh, and uh, today, uh, when you think about money, there's actually a, a coexistence of both private forms of money and public forms of money. Uh, so private forms of money come in many, many shades. Uh, some examples are uh, retail deposits at banks, institutional deposits at banks, e-money schemes, uh, but also stable coins, uh, which are cryptocurrencies uh, that are fully backed uh, with a reserve fund uh, and are uh, uh, one form of uh, a private uh, uh, money. Uh, and then there are public forms of money, particularly the notes of coins that we all have in our uh, back pocket, as well as central bank reserves. Now, uh, why is there uh, the coexistence of both private and public money? Why can't we just have one or the other? Uh, so let's go back to history. Um, uh, historically, of course, uh, we started uh, with coins, uh, and those were, uh, you know, uh, in many cases, public forms of money. 
But those uh, were then uh, innovation started. Uh, and innovation is, is here uh, represented with this book on the right side. Uh, and uh, the innovation was really uh, book entry forms of money. Um, so uh, I would argue that it's the interaction between technologies who so going from a coin to a book, uh, as well as supply, demand and policy factors that are influencing what kind of monies uh, are available today. So let me go through each point. So uh, we had coins, uh, then there was the technological innovation in the Roman Empire, as well as in India, uh, to settle uh, in, uh, in letters of ex exchange, or in, in, in the Roman Empire, these were letter the uh, cambio, and uh, those are equivalents of demand deposits. Uh, furthermore, uh, on the supply side, uh, there was uh, an interest uh, to diversify businesses, uh, to start landing, and uh, in Europe, uh, there was a papal uh, tax collection uh, that needed to rebalance uh, liquidity. So there were supply side factors uh, that uh, took advantage of the innovations. On the demand side, of course, there were merchants that were traveling the world, buying goods, and you know, traveling around with huge amounts of coins, of course, is, is not a good idea. And so the book entry system is, is, a, is a huge innovation there. And then, of course, the policy frameworks changed. For example, limited liability was introduced in Florence in 1408. Clearinghouses were uh, created in the in the 15th uh, in the 1500s. Uh, the Bank of Amsterdam uh, was uh, created in the 1600s. And then, of course, uh, central banks such as the Riksbank uh, were also started. So it's it's sort of like an interaction in between technology, demand, supply, and regulatory factors. So let's back to today. So we are ending up in a world where we have a mix of public and private monies. And what is the relationship between those public and private monies? I would argue that this is about redemption. And so there are four facets of redeemability. Uh, first of all, there is stability. So if you have a private form of money, such as a, a bank deposit or a stable coin, you know that you can exchange that deposit against a dollar coin or a dollar note at any point in time. There is stability in the face value. Secondly, there is commonality. All of these private forms of money can be exchanged back into one common denominator, which is central bank money. Thirdly, there's feasibility. There's a whole infrastructure that allows you to do this exchange, for example, ATMs, um, you know, all kinds of payment systems that allow you to switch in between private forms of money and public forms of money. And finally, there's legal and regulatory clarity. It is very clear that if you have a demand deposit, you can uh, have uh, uh, this switch into central bank money. And so as a, as a result of the redemption feature of private forms of money, private forms of money are stable stores of money. We all we never doubt that your demand deposit can be transformed into central bank money, such as coins. So interoperability, homogeneity of value, but also diversity of offerings of different forms of money and innovation of competition are all characteristics of today's system. Now let's go to CBDCs. 
in the literature and in the policy debate at the moment, there are two, uh, two uh, um, shades uh, of CBDCs that are debated. So one is strict CBDC, uh, which is uh, usually implemented in the form of two-tiered CBDC. A number of central banks have run uh, uh, trials on this two-tiered CBDC, and a number of central banks are, are actually in the process of rolling this out. And so there, the central bank issues the CBDC and controls the technology and the settlement uh, system. And then the private sector distributes, say, in wallets. So basically, you know, there is like uh, uh, some um, uh, DLT or blockchain technology that is run by the central bank and then private uh, uh, firms offer wallets and you can have CBDCs on your uh, phone uh, in the form of tokens and you can use that in, in cyberspace uh, just like you use coins in, in the real world uh, or non-cyber real world. <laughs> Secondly, uh, we have proposed the notion of synthetic CBDC. So there it is the private sector that issues and distributes, but uh, those issuance of coins are fully backed by central bank reserves. So the innovation here, the technological innovation, the settlement is done by the private sector. Because the idea is that this is the comparative advantage of the private sector is to innovate to serve customer needs, to figure out what are demands and supply. Uh, but uh, the redeemability, the safety, and the convertibility is guaranteed because uh, it's fully backed by central bank reserves. So as a user, you always know that even though this is not true CBDC, it is issued by a private firm, it is fully backed by reserves. So this is what we call synthetic CBDC. And so, you know, initially we thought these are alternative models uh, and you can have either the true two-tiered CBDC or the synthetic CBDC. But what I want to argue today is actually those two forms can coexist and are likely to coexist uh, going forward. So let me take you through those arguments. So let's start with the two-tiered CBDC. It's a new technology uh, and you know, at the point where a, a given central bank decides uh, to issue its CBDC, it's probably the state of the art. But as you know, technological advance is extremely quick and within a year or two, it might be outdated. Uh, needs are evolving as well and interests are evolving. So in terms of, you know, the example in terms of the new technologies is of course, uh, you know, uh, chip technology, you know, it would have been a terrible idea if the government had done uh, the, techno the, the development of chips. I mean, it's, it's, it's the innovation by the private sector that really led to the rapid development of chip technology. Uh, uh, electronic photos uh, are another example here. Uh, in terms of evolving needs also, I mean, there are a thousand variants in which you can use CBDCs and uh, the central bank is simply not in the business to think about all of these uh, uh, use cases. And finally, um, you know, they're evolving interests. Uh, so uh, you, you need to have uh, interoperability relative to many, many different uh, uh, use cases. So the danger is that a central bank now, you know, uh, rolls out its CBDC 
but it will be outdated very quickly. And what is going to happen then? So our thinking is that there will be innovation on top of the CBDC. So de facto CBDC and synthetic CBDC are going to coexist. So there's gonna be a CBDC layer and an SCBDC layer. So the CBDC layer guarantees the redemption features, commonality, feasibility, and clarity that I discussed earlier. And it uh, makes uh, uh, the payment system interoperable and in principle allows for diversity and innovation. But much of the innovation can be done on a second layer that is something like a synthetic CBDC layer, where basically the government issued, central bank issued CBDC is used as a reserve for the SCBDC. And that is a, is a, uh, a, a private sector uh, run uh, synthetic CBDC. And of course, there has to be some regulatory framework and some legal uh, framework around that innovation. And so in our view, it's very likely that there are different layers of CBDC and synthetic CBDC that is going to coexist. Just like we have right now, we have coins, but we also have uh, private forms of money. There will be all kinds of uh, digital forms of money even and, and that is innovating on top of uh, what the central banks are offering. So uh, to summarize, uh, it is likely to have coexistence. So today we have coexistence of privately and publicly issued currencies, and that is likely to also be the case for digital currencies. So the coexistence of private and public currencies allows for diversity, innovation, and competition. Central bank money remains important for redemption because you all know that you can redeem any private money for this public money. And this is underpinning the stability of value and efficiency of payments. And so the CBDC and synthetic CBDC are likely to coexist in the digital world, just as coins and bank deposits have. The CBDC offers the interoperability to new non-bank providers, and uh, it can uh, achieve financial inclusion and other policy goals. Uh, and the synthetic privately offered CBDC uh, or synthetic CBDC digital currencies, they are at the forefront of fulfilling uh, user needs and uh, innovating in terms of technology. But it is key to have a regulatory and legal framework uh, that is appropriate for this coexistence of private and public digital monies. So let me stop here. Great, thank you so much. Um, Dr. Nerola, if you could go ahead and take off your presentation. Great, thank you so much, Gina. And that was that was very interesting, Tobias. Um, uh, thank you, I wanna thank the Cato Institute for having me here. I'm very excited to have this opportunity uh, to present to you. Uh, so let me just share my screen, there we go. Uh, so one thing I want to say about my presentation is that I'm going to focus on the technology. Uh, I think we, we often spend a lot of time talking about the regulatory aspects of what a digital currency might look like or the economic aspects. But I think if we, as we've seen today, if we take a look at the largest companies, um, the most uh, influential, they're tech companies, technology is incredibly important and technology influences what we can do with policy, what, what we can even enable. So uh, what I hope to do to tell you, what I hope to tell you today is a little bit about how I'm seeing the technology development of digital currency. So to start, 
uh, let's recap where digital payments are today. Digital payments are really at their essence, just the transfer of information. It should be extraordinarily cheap, easy, and universal to make a digital payment. But instead, uh, retail transaction costs are anywhere from 05 to 0.9% of a country's GDP, depending on the country. This is a huge amount. 7.1 million American households don't have bank accounts. So that means they don't have access to digital payments. Uh, and our existing payment systems are, I would argue, woefully behind. Think about how easy it is for you to send a photo to a friend in another country. It's, it's trivial. You get an email address, you get an SMS phone number, you know that you're going to be able to send that photo. Uh, but think about sending a small payment. Uh, you both have to agree on a service, you have to think about exchange costs, you have to think about fees. It can be really difficult and slow uh, to do this type of thing. And it, I don't think that this is going to be very easy to fix if we leave things the way that they are, because unfortunately, large-scale change requires coordination between many different stakeholders. The way the system works today is the way that it's worked for decades. Um, the system was built at a time when it was unfeasible to think about settling hundreds of millions of transactions instantly. It was at a time, it was built at a time when the technology wasn't there. So we had to think about things like netting and batching, uh, but the technology has advanced. And unfortunately, the architecture of the system, the structure has not advanced with it. I would argue we have a very good payment instrument right now that we should go back to and uh, take a look at some of its features. A lot of people when thinking about CBDC, they approach it from the perspective of, oh, we have digital money in the form of central bank reserves. Perhaps we should give more people access to the reserves. But I would argue another really interesting frame and approach is uh, we have coins and, uh, and dollar bills, $2 trillion worth of these things. They're very useful. Uh, can we think about digitizing these things? So cash is universally accepted, uh, very easy to use, almost no, no matter who you are. You don't have to be an expert with technology. It preserves privacy. When I pay someone $20, there's no one else eavesdropping on that transaction. And it doesn't require an intermediary and internet connection or complex new software in order to make cash payments. But unfortunately, cash isn't digital. But I think it's it's really it would be really good for us to approach the potential for digital uh, currency from this perspective. And that perspective is a universal digital protocol for value transfer. If we look back to the internet, the internet enabled us to standardize the transfer of information into addressable packets. So decades ago, many, many decades ago, uh, we created these layers of protocol. And at the very bottom layer, ultimately, it's, it's very simple. The, the bottom layer doesn't know if you're streaming a YouTube video, if you're sending a photo, if you're doing a Zoom call, if you're transferring really important sensitive information. The bottom layer has no idea. It's just standardized addressable packets. And all of the functionality that we take for granted that's been built on top of the internet comes on top of that. The system was simple, open, and accessible with useful interfaces and APIs. So we were able to build these really rich, amazing applications on top of it by first defining this basic standard. I would argue that cryptocurrencies are a very interesting example of what a universal protocol for value transfer could look like, but digital cash is 
quite fundamentally different. And if we look back to the internet, we remember that it was a partnership between industry, academia, and government. And it was very important to have all three of those roles present uh, in the beginning in defining these standards. Uh, and it's true that um, it is very hard once standards are defined and once a technology moves very fast, but we're still using the internet protocols from 50, 60 years ago. And because we were very careful in designing these in such a layered way, they're working quite well. They're still working quite well and we can innovate and move forward at the higher layers. So how does this apply to CBDC? Well, I, what I'd like to articulate here are what we see as some of the core requirements for a central bank digital currency. So first of all, like dollar bills and coins, this is a liability of the central bank. It means that the central bank controls issuance and final transaction validation. And we think it's very important to consider it from this perspective to maintain the mandate of financial stability. This is critical infrastructure. So that means that security and resilience are the most important features to consider fundamentally. Uh, if, if this becomes a national retail payment system, we must, must make sure that it's accessible and that it can't be attacked. Obviously, um, a central bank digital currency needs to comply with all laws and regulations. And I would hope that it could support these diverse interfaces to encourage competition and innovation. Now, if we think about uh, a CBDC to be used like cash, so as a retail payment system that users might actually hold themselves, then we have some additional requirements. We need it to be very high throughput and low latency. We want it to be broadly accessible and usable. And very important, we really need to consider user privacy. Um, and I think that uh, the, the bottom two points on this slide are a little bit in tension. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is that I would hope that we can create a system that preserves fine-grained user privacy, but the challenge is in complying with laws and regulations and preventing illicit activity. Uh, this, is, this is something that is, is really uh, fundamentally difficult to do, and I'll talk a little bit more about it in a moment. I would argue CBDC technical design doesn't just require building in the private sector, it actually requires fundamental research. The existing private sector digital currency platforms and protocols were not actually built with a CBDC use case in mind. Many of them were built for decentralized cryptocurrencies or as, uh, as uh, interchange between banks or for uh, more broad data like supply chains or provenance for other types of things. So we don't actually have a system out there right now that was built with purely a CBDC use case in mind. And I think that that introduces a different set of requirements. CBDC research today is uh, generally quite limited, mainly focusing on high level policy questions or overly simplified proofs of concept that are not really getting at the true challenges of what it would take to create and launch a CBDC. And neutral, rigorous CBDC technical research is still needed in order to prove real-world feasibility, in order to get to the point where we can actually uncover important trade-offs uh, and opportunities in both the technical and policy arenas. And unfortunately, central banks at the moment lack the capabilities to rigorously build and test CBDC designs. Uh, there are, quite simply, very few expert digital currency uh, engineers globally. Central banks have traditionally not had technical expertise in distributed systems and cryptography, with good reason, they haven't had to. 
And there is a cultural and knowledge divide right now between engineers and central bankers. So um, central banks will need to partner and collaborate with experts in these arenas. Um, because there are so many challenging research questions that we still have to address. So first of all, uh, we need to figure out how to provide universal access for critical infrastructure with security and resilience. So we want something that is broadly accessible, uh, that is usable by large parts of the population. That's, that's the goal with this, something like digital cash. But at the same time, it needs to be incredibly secure. So how can we do that? And security is usually, um, usually handled by, by limiting access to who to the system. Uh, we also want to think about offline access. Uh, if, if we're thinking about digital cash, we can't presume that the users of the system have access to the internet at all points in time. We want this to be something that is usable in the case of um, a natural disaster, for example. Uh, we also can't assume that the users will have access to the latest smartphone devices. So we want to think about how to access this digital currency um, at, the, at the base level for people who might not be very technically literate. Uh, we also want to think about how to design architectures to best enable competition and innovation in the private sector. So this goes back a little bit to um, Tobias Adrian's talk. Where is that line between the public and the private sector? And I don't think we have the answer to this question yet. And we need to build and test different architectures in order to understand what is possible um, at different levels, at different breaks in the design between what part of the rails the public sector runs and what part of the rails the private sector runs. And then most important, I think, and really our, our largest challenge that we need to address is to figure out how to preserve user privacy while preventing illicit activity. And uh, it's very interesting because there is a lot to learn from the realm of cryptocurrencies. There have been major advances there in using cryptography to provide privacy while at the same time making it publicly verifiable that a transaction uh, preserves certain invariants, that it, it the user actually has the money to spend, that they're not creating money out of nowhere, um, that the transaction's valid, it's been authorized. These things can be proven without actually being able to see the amount of the transaction or even the people involved. And so I think what is core for us to understand right now and to, and to engage in in research is how to extend this in order to um, in order to have the ability to uh, to comply with laws and regulations. And it's something that I think that is really important for this audience in particular, is to think about the value of privacy, um, how important that is and uh, what a critical part of our values as Americans that is. Um, we, we, different central banks will think about digital currency in different ways, and they will build different systems. Um, but as the US, we need to think about what types of values we want to embed in our system. And I would argue that privacy is very important there. Uh, and we are going to need to have a very involved conversation about how to manage illicit activity while at the same time preserving uh, the privacy of individual transactions. Um, it shouldn't be the case that every transaction I make going to buy coffee is recorded somewhere um, and readable in some big database. That's, I don't think that the government wants that and I don't think that we want that. So we have to think about um, how to do this. So 
CBDC research, as we progress, it's happening. Uh, central banks are realizing that though they might not know yet whether they actually want to issue a digital currency, they need to be prepared to do so. They need to actually engage in this research to figure out what it might look like, what the different approaches are. And these are some of the, the properties of that research we think are most important. It needs to be neutral. Um, we need independent, trustworthy results. We can't uh, rely on the private sector to provide um, to provide results that are trustworthy if they're being driven by a profit motive or uh, promoting a specific token or technology. This should be technology first, but at the same time, we need to incorporate policy requirements and user research at each stage. So we need to do these things in tandem. It can't be that we go and figure out all of the policy and then find the technology that works, nor can we build a design and then layer on the policy on top. These things have to be done together because they influence each other. Um, and ideally, the work that we do would be flexible enough so that even though central banks are going to build different systems and incorporate different values, um, we have enough commonality and enough standards that uh, the systems can work together. Um, so that's all that I wanted to share today. Uh, and I really look forward to continuing this, hearing from the panelists and the conversation. So thank you. Thank you so much. That was really interesting. Um, Dr. White, over to you. Okay, uh, I'm very happy to be here. And I thank the other panelists uh, so far for their interesting contributions. I wanna discuss whether the state or the market should provide digital currency. And by that, I mean, let's not take the desirability of having central banks involved in providing digital currency uh, for granted. So there are private digital currencies and we need to think about what's gained and what's lost by bringing the central bank uh, into the picture in any way that expands on its current role as uh, running the settlement system. So I wanna start with some basic considerations that I think have been often overlooked in the literature on central bank digital currencies, although not by the previous two speakers, fortunately. Uh, as Tobias actually emphasized, uh, private commercial banks have been providing money, trusted money to the public for centuries in the form of transferable deposits and currency, uh, currency in the form of banknotes. And this is all possible because money balances, the most sort of fundamental concept of money as a medium of exchange, uh, money balances are a private good. In technical terms, they are rival in consumption and they are excludable in supply. So our presumption is that the market doesn't fail to provide money efficiency, uh, efficiently uh, for any public good reasons. Now, this is a rebuttable presumption. Uh, that is, I'm open to arguments that there is some externality problem or some public good aspect or some information asymmetry or some natural monopoly that would bring about a market failure uh, as a, and that would be a rationale for government provision of a digital currency but there has to be an argument there it can't just be well the fed already provides paper currency or the fed already provides wholesale digital payments uh, Retail is different and private institutions provide currency. 
So to proponents of central bank digital currency, I say, first, tell me where are the Pareto relevant externalities? Where is the market failure that you're trying to remedy? Uh, Tobias has already said quite a bit about the history of private money, uh, transferable deposits since around 1200 AD, banknotes since around 1650 AD, and private banknotes quickly became more popular than coins for person-to-person -person transactions. There are more than 60 countries or jurisdictions in which there's been competition among private note issuers. So there's no evidence of natural monopoly in currency provision. And the private sector has led innovations in deposit transfer, uh, paper checks, giro systems, wiring money dates back to the 1860s, even before Western Union started wiring money, banks were doing it with uh, encrypted telegrams. Of course, in our own era, debit cards in the 1970s, online banking and bill paying since the 1990s, phone payment apps more recently. And now there are a long list of private payment innovators, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, Alipay, WeChat Pay, in India, Paytm, in Kenya, the M-Pesa system, uh, private remittance firms like TransferWise. And in a, those are all systems for transferring central bank uh, denominated money. On a whole nother uh, basis, sort of to one side, but uh, as was mentioned, our, we see a lot of innovation here. Uh, we have Bitcoin uh, and other cryptocurrencies and stable coins, uh, but that's a topic I'm going to leave to other speakers. I believe Caitlin Long will be talking about that later today. So the the bottom line question is, would central bank digital currencies improve consumer welfare over the private alternatives? And I want to mention here a recent book by Alberto Mingardi and Deirdre McCloskey entitled The Myth of the Entrepreneurial State. Uh, we shouldn't expect innovation or efficiency from institutions that have little skin in the game. And that's the case with respect to central banks and innovations in retail payments. Uh, in the literature in the, among economists on central bank digital currencies, uh, many authors find it convenient to assume that the central bank can provide retail payments and can provide financial intermediation just as efficiently as commercial banks and FinTech firms. But we shouldn't take these assumptions seriously in doing micro policy analysis. We shouldn't take it for granted that there's no efficiency loss in switching from private providers to a central bank provider. So I want to focus on three key weaknesses in the case for central bank digital currencies. And the first set of weaknesses you might call microeconomic. And it's the simple consideration that a bureaucracy more efficient than the private sector uh, is generally wishful thinking. Uh, if you look at the experience with state-owned liquor stores, with the U.S. Postal Service, with uh, Petro-Canada, which was Canada's uh, public option in oil and gas, uh, they all lose money and provide lousy service. In the realm of central bank digital currencies, the Central Bank of Ecuador, 
provided a, a launched, I should say, a mobile payment service uh, back in 2015. It was poorly designed, poorly managed, did not provide what consumers wanted and trusted. And so it was closed down after three years. So we need to worry about the uh, consumer acceptance of what's being provided. Does it really serve a need? And private entrepreneurs are better at discovering that than public bureaucracies. So the idea that we should provide Fed accounts for all with the level of retail service, with the Fed providing the level of retail service that commercial banks currently provide, that would require the Fed to invest in retail branch offices, ATMs, websites, and the development of phone applications. Now I noticed in Tobias's presentation, he omitted that possibility entirely. He talked about a two-tier system where private firms, uh, banks are the interface with the public. Uh, and then the synthetic system where they are also the interface with the public rather than the central bank providing retail accounts directly, you might call it a one-tier system. And I think that's prudent to uh, consider that less desirable than possibilities where commercial banks that have some experience in, and other payment firms have some experience in retail payments interact with the public. But there is a lot of literature assuming that we should have bank accounts on the books of the Fed available to ordinary consumers and firms. Uh, secondly, central bank digital currency threatens to reduce the efficiency of financial intermediation uh, to politicize the allocation of credit, uh, a topic that Jeb Henserling and uh, Phil Graham talked about this morning. So in principle, this could be avoided. In principle, the Fed could if it issued a retail digital currency and thereby attracted a lot of deposits away from commercial banks, causing disintermediation of the banking system, it could in principle auction all of these funds that it's attracted back to the banks with no strings attached so that banks could go on doing the same lending activity they're now doing. And some authors call this pass through funding. But in practice, I worry that strings are going to be attached uh, in the current environment where the Fed is already engaged in selective credit allocation, you should expect socially proactive commitments or lending mandates to be required of the commercial banks that receive funding from the Fed. Hey, they're receiving public money. Why shouldn't there be public guidelines on how to lend it? So that would further politicize the allocation of credit and thereby reduce the efficiency of financial intermediation. Financial uh, funds would no longer be going to their most highly valued uses. And third, there's the issue of privacy, which uh, Nea has uh, mentioned. We need to think about how to preserve privacy in a panopticon where all accounts are on a government ledger. Uh, a central bank retail digital currency could be designed to allow anonymous transfers up to say $10,000, which is the current reporting threshold uh, for deposit transfers and for reporting cash at the uh, airport. But I think generally it's safer to have a plurality of competing private banks and other payment firms 
than to have uh, everybody have an account with the government's uh, central bank. It's better for protecting data from snooping. And we could do more to protect privacy of individuals' accounts at commercial banks. That is, we could raise the threshold or the, the, the bar for compelling banks to turn over information uh, to federal authorities. We could require a court order, for example. Generally, we don't want to prevent peaceful, uh, sorry, the question of uh, illicit transactions came up. And I think we need to make an important distinction between different kinds of illicit transactions. There are illicit transactors who are involved in activities that uh, are clearly harmful to people, uh, extortion, credit card fraud, and so on. But there are other uh, illicit transactors who are performing peaceful mutual gains from trade. They're operating in black markets, uh, buying and selling drugs, uh, employing undocumented workers, uh, catering to people's various vices that have been uh, rendered illegal, but these are victimless crimes. So I'm reluctant to encourage the design of a system that would make it easier to crack down on people for those kinds of uh, illicit activities. Uh, illicit in quotation marks. I mean, currently illegal, but not causing any harm. Uh, so I think we need to keep that in mind and keeping that in mind suggests that we should keep payment systems in the private sector, uh, certainly at the retail level. So I'll stop there and turn it back to the chair. Thank you. Um... Dr. Prasad, if you want to go ahead and take over. Thank you, Gina. The presentations by my three distinguished co-panelists, I think, have very nicely set out the frame of reference that I would like to use in my remarks. And it's worth thinking as we ponder retail CBDC, which is what we are focusing on right now, about why central banks are pondering the issuance of retail CBDC. And as I look at what central banks are doing and why they say they're doing it, it seems to fall into a couple of categories. The first is a group of developing economies. Ecuador was mentioned, it had an unsuccessful experiment, but others like Uruguay, the Bahamas and so on seem to view CBDC as a way of promoting financial inclusion, giving more people easy access to digital payment systems and to other financial services. If one looks at a more advanced economy like Sweden, where the Riksbank is contemplating the issue of an e-krona, the motivation seems to be entirely different. Um, there, the private payment systems are working very well. Swish has an overwhelming majority of retail transactions going through its network. The use of cash has almost entirely been eliminated. So what is wrong? The Riksbank is concerned, and I think rightly so, that having all of the payment systems on the retail front in the hands of private providers is a good thing. They might lead to more efficiency gains, um, lower costs, but they leave open vulnerability. In particular, if the entire payment system is in the hands of private providers, there are times when in moments of financial crisis or even concerns about counterparty risk, the payment systems might end up freezing, which might mean 
that economies essentially stop being able to conduct basic activities. So one could think about the e-krona, and the Riksbank has been explicit about this, as a backstop to private payments providers. One may also think about other compulsions, why a digital version of the central bank money might make sense. Of course, um, some like the Bank of Canada have argued that it's also a matter of monetary sovereignty, uh, that ultimately you want to have central bank money retaining relevance in an economy, even at the retail level. But that again raises the question, why? So it's worth thinking about what a CBDC might accomplish. If one thinks about the powerless times that we face right now and the difficulties in particular that central banks have been facing in terms of undertaking unconventional monetary or policy operations, if a CBDC were to displace cash, that would make monetary policy somewhat easier in perilous times. It would make a negative interest rate, a negative policy interest rate somewhat easier to implement. These helicopter drops of money that we talk about that are typically money financed fiscal operations could be done more directly if everyone had a central bank account. Certainly one could just um, use those accounts to either impose a negative nominal interest rate um, or one could in principle um, issue helicopter drops of money much more easily. But I don't think monetary policy implementation and transmission is going to get fundamentally altered uh, because as the previous panelists have pointed out, most of the creation of money in an economy is really undertaken by commercial banks rather than by um, the central bank. There are certainly other advantages to a CBDC. It would bring more activities from the shadow economy into the tax net for many emerging market economies, which um, don't have very broad tax nets. This would certainly be um, beneficial. Um, one can think about counterfeiting, which is the bane of paper currency in most economies um, being reduced. Um, so there are some side benefits as well. And seniorage, um, which was referred to uh, by Mr. Phil Graham, um, would actually be somewhat easier if once you paid the fixed costs of setting up a CBDC, the marginal costs of issuing and distributing a CBDC would be pretty minimal. So there are benefits, but as with any innovation, there are significant costs and disadvantages. One is that if you go back to the basic question about whether a central bank should even be trying to do what the private sector can do perfectly well, one might argue that having a government authority try to manage retail payments may actually squelch innovation in the private sector. Um, as Mr. White suggested, ultimately, who can compete with the government, even if the government is not entirely efficient? Um, a greater risk is that of capital flight. If indeed we all had access to central bank retail accounts, and those would presumably be non-interest bearing, again, at a time of financial crisis or a lack of confidence in the banking system, even if our deposits are all insured by the FDIC, we might think of a central bank account as intrinsically being safer. That could lead to a flight of deposits out of the banking system. And then we would be faced with this curious irony that trying to forestall financial instability, one might have set up an instrument that creates that very instability to begin with. Um, in addition, of course, um, I think privacy is a fairly serious issue. The central bank is under no obligation to give us all an anonymous 
mode of payment. But ultimately, no matter what privacy guardrails one has in place, the reality is that anything digital is going to be traceable, which is good if you want to attack the shadow economy or attack corruption, but may not be so good, uh, as um, uh, Ms. Nerula pointed out. If um, I wanted to buy my fellow panelists a cup of coffee or lunch, if I was in a benevolent mood, and could not do that without either a private payments provider or the government knowing. So this opens up a broad set of issues that go beyond economics. It's really about legal and social mores that will come into question. And this is the way the debate is being framed, for instance, in Sweden, where there is a recognition by the Riksbank that this is not just about economics, but whether Swedes really want to live in this economy where they have essentially no hope of privacy. But it's worth making a couple of other points about what the role of the central bank is in this uh, um, situation. And I think these are worth pondering. First, is there a way, um, intermediate sort of way to get many of the benefits of a digital payment system without necessarily disintermediating the banking system and getting the central bank into the very uncomfortable position of having to make credit allocation decisions? And it looks like there is. Um, many countries, including the Chinese Central Bank, the People's Bank of China, PBC, um, which has already started trials of a digital currency, um, the proposal by the Bank of England, all talk about what uh, uh, Dr. Adrian referred to, which is essentially a two-tiered structure where the central bank um, creates the digital currency, distributes it to commercial banks, which is exactly the way paper currency works right now, and then the commercial banks maintain the digital wallets. So on their books, they would have the non-interest bearing commercial um, CBDC digital wallets. At the same time, they would offer their deposit accounts as well. This has certain advantages. It keeps the commercial banks in the game. It keeps the central bank from having to be in the position of allocating credit. Um, and in addition, it allows for innovation. One could think about a system wherein the CBDC essentially works as tokens that are interoperable across different platforms. And then the private sector can continue to innovate away in terms of its allocation decisions, in terms of um, creating better payment systems. So I think there is a middle way. Then let's take the concern about flight risk. The Bahamas has actually launched its sand dollar nationwide. It's probably the first uh, country to really issue a CBDC nationwide. This happened just last month. And the Central Bank of the Bahamas is an interesting structure for its CBDC. Um, it is set up in the form of central bank accounts, but there is a limit to the amount of money that an individual or a business for whom uh, the limit is slightly higher can put in the central bank account. So the Central Bank of the Bahamas believes that it can increase financial inclusion, give a broad swath of its population in those very dispersed islands um, access to financial products and services through the CBDC, but mitigate the risk of flight risk. So I think ultimately we will come at a sort of middle solution where many of the benefits of a digital form of central bank money can coexist with private sector innovation. Not to say there aren't um, risks, especially risks that will come out in the transition, but I think this can be managed. And I will conclude my remarks with a couple of observations about the role of one very important issue in all of this, which is trust. As one thinks about um, the world of decentralized cryptocurrencies and about stable coins um, that are issued by the private sector, it seems like these are displacing the sort of trust 
one might have in financial institutions, established financial institutions, or in particular in the central bank. But what is interesting is that in many countries where in fact the decentralized cryptocurrency seem to be gaining traction, it's not because they're completely escaping government regulatory control, but because in some sense they are sanctioned by the government and where the government sets up guardrails for the operation of these cryptocurrencies. I think it is hugely beneficial for Bitcoin that in fact, um, the US government now has a position on Bitcoin. It is viewed as an asset, um, as a financial asset uh, and gains from the cryptocurrency are taxed by um, the IRS. And this I think gives legitimacy. Likewise, if you think about stable coins, where is the trust for stable coins coming from? It is really coming from the fact that they are backed up by central bank money. Um, if you thought about the initial stable coin tether um, that was backed up, uh, at least in principle, by um, a, a reserve of US dollars, and it is trust in the central bank money that ultimately allowed this medium of exchange to flower. So I think ultimately, um, the role of um, government provided trust is going to be very important, even for these private payment systems, decentralized uh, um, systems to work very well. Um, and ultimately, the question is not whether decentralized trust is going to be um, or public consensus mechanisms are going to be a substitute. And what we've seen so far is that um, many of the um, decentralized cryptocurrencies that we've seen, such as Bitcoin, which initially came up um, uh, aiming to be mediums of exchange, have not done particularly well as mediums of exchange. Why they continue to be um, stores of value is a question that I do not have a good answer to. I don't think um, they should be great stores of value, but there too, um, the notion of trust seems to be very important. So I think what we're going to see in the future, especially as retail CBDCs start playing a more important role, is really a fragmentation of these different roles of currency with central bank provided money still acting as a fundamental store of value, um, while the medium of exchange function can be parceled off into other private sector-led innovations that are built on the base of central bank trust. So I think this fragmentation is something that certainly the government uh, should not stand in the way of. I think it should promote innovation, but I continue to believe that central banks will play a very important role, at least in terms of providing a foundation for our monetary systems. Great, wonderful. Well, thank you all for really interesting remarks there. I'm gonna go ahead and start off with a couple of my own questions and then we'll go to audience questions, which we have quite a lot of uh, and got about 15 minutes to take questions. So hopefully we'll get through, through a few here. Um, I wanted to follow up on something, Dr. Narula, that you said during your, your remarks. Um, you mentioned that it's going to be very important for central banks going forward to really balance um, policy research and technology research. And I guess that opens the question, you know, as, as they start to embark on this research, do you see them emphasizing one of those over the other? Right. Uh, great question. Um, I think it's naturally, um, they're naturally sort of attuned to do the policy research. Central banks have great experts um, in, in policy, in monetary economics, uh, in these types of fields. Um, maybe maybe not as as knowledgeable about the systems and the cryptography, like I said. Um, so uh, you know, as we have these conversations with central banks, we want to let them know that there are academic resources, there are people doing this research that it's very important to do. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's not a done deal how to design these systems at all. I think there's still a lot of questions about the architecture and the, uh, the underlying protocols. Interesting, interesting. And then um, we have a question from the audience, which maybe Professor Adrian, maybe or Dr. Adrian, maybe you could start us off on, um, which is, you know, do these digital currencies spell doom for cash or will physical cash and digital currencies end up coexisting at the end of the day? Yeah, uh, thanks uh, for this question. So um, uh, money is used uh, for many different things in many different uh, ways. And, um, you know, some countries do see the disappearance of cash, physical cash, and that's the case in Sweden. But in the US, that's not the case at all. Um, so uh, I don't believe uh, that physical cash is necessarily going to disappear uh, in all countries. In some countries it might, but not in all countries. Um, uh, but um, you know, even, even though uh, there can be uh, a, a case for digital cash and uh, you know, many transactions can, can be done digitally, um, you know, uh, the, the, the observation that uh, many uh, come back uh, from in, in China is that you have beggars uh, that hold up a QR code uh, uh, to, to ask for, uh, for gifts. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, so yes, I, I, I do think uh, all these things will, will, will coexist. Interesting, interesting. Um, and Dr. White, I think this one's for you, but on, on um... Slido, Pablo asks, is there a concern that a politicized Federal Reserve would misuse central bank digital currencies, or it, should the concern be president, present regardless of Fed politics? So I guess how much does sort of institutional design and, and current events um, influence the, the uh, publicization question? Well, we should want to have an institutional design that is robust to the politics at the Fed, uh, who's in charge of the Fed and which party appointed them and so on. So right, we need to be concerned about the potential for abuse, even if we're not currently seeing uh, serious kinds of uh, abuse. But there is the danger uh, in an entirely uh, digital system where all transfers go through the central bank that the central bank can censor payments that it doesn't like uh, or that it's told to censor by other political authorities. So, I mean, that's a danger with abolishing cash. And so I'm encouraged that the Bank for International Settlements in their recent report said that uh, we think it's an important design principle that cash not be abolished uh, uh, providing a, a central bank digital currency would be an additional option. Uh, so I, I think it's important to insist on that. Right, interesting, interesting. Um, on Twitter, Nick asks Tobias, um, and I think this is somewhat related, but do you worry that institutional forces will block the interoperability of the different pu public and private layers of CBDCs that you described? That's an excellent question, and uh, I I would think that Neha also has thoughts around this question. So, um, you know, I argued uh, two uh, basic things. So, number one, uh, 
the private sector is better at, at innovating. So whatever the central bank is going to do, it's going to be outdated at some point. So the central bank, in whatever it does, wants to allow private sector innovation. I think, I think that, I think all the panelists uh, agreed on that. Uh, but secondly, uh, you need to have a backup where uh, you are able to redeem whatever electronic money or, or, or digital currencies there are. You have to know that you can always swap that back into something that has a central bank backing, right? I mean, this is what monetary theory uh, and monetary history has, has taught us for a long time, is that uh, you, you need to have some certainty that you uh, can uh, redeem currencies into something uh, that has a stable value. And this is where a central bank has an advantage relative to private banks because it can generate this trust through the special authorities uh, that central banks have. Um, and so uh, then uh, comes this question of how do you make sure that on one hand you have the innovation, but on the other hand, you have the redeemability so that you can go back to something that is publicly issued. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, that's where the technological challenge comes in. Um, so in principle, you want that to be future proof so that whatever the future technological evolution is, which you don't know yet, uh, is going to be compatible with uh, some basic setup uh, that uh, uh, is not going to slow down uh, the future evolution. Um, I, I want to add uh, uh, the additional twist that, uh, that Aswar uh, uh, was alluding to, which is in some countries, of course, the trust is not provided by the domestic central bank, but it's provided by a, a foreign currency. So this is typically when dollarization occurs, right? And uh, 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 so, you know, many countries are either fully dollarized or partially dollarized because the public doesn't trust the, the domestic money, but it does trust the dollar. And so that is a particular challenge. And that is uh, uh, one particular challenge, in, you know, going forward, even for a US dollar uh, or, or, or private cryptocurrencies, you know, such as uh, Libra uh, that, uh, that is uh, much discussed or, or other stable coins. You know, the, the challenge is that uh, either CBDCs uh, buy a reserve currency or global stable coins can make dollarization that much cheaper and that much more appealing in other countries. And so this is why other countries are really rushing to, to think about, you know, in particular countries with weak monetary frameworks are really worried that their monetary uh, operations are gonna to be totally undermined because the technology is gonna allow dollarization that much more, more easily. And so this is one particular twist that is particularly challenging in terms of uh, international uh, monetary uh, systems. That's an interesting point. And Dr. Nerula, did you have did you have thoughts here? Sorry, just uh, yes, just on the on the last note. Um, you know, I I think this is inevitable. Currencies are going to compete. And this is just going to happen more and more and more, not less and less and less. And I, I don't think there's really anything that we can do about it. So this is certainly a concern. Um, consumers, users are going to vote. Uh, they're going to vote on currency by choosing what they want to hold and choosing what they want to conduct uh, transactions in. And, and I think that uh, this, is, this is an inevitable uh, sort of uh, trend. And, and 
it's it's not stoppable. It is worrisome, and I understand why a lot of countries are worried. They should be worried, um, and uh, it, you know we need to think about what's going to happen and think about how to mitigate the risks. Can I comment? I mean, I think we should look at it from the point of view of the users of money in those countries with bad domestic money. They should be free to choose which money better serves them, uh, and they're going to trust a currency that with a more stable purchasing power which is one reason why we see the dollar rather than Bitcoin uh, being adopted in places like Venezuela, where they're using Zelle to transfer dollar balances, uh, at least until Zelle decides that it faces a danger of uh, regulatory slapdown <laughs> and puts a stop to it. But yeah, I, I think bad currencies should be allowed to disappear. I think dollarization is better for countries where the domestic authorities can't provide a stable or haven't provided a stable currency. Uh, and bottom-up dollarization should not be stopped for the sake of local central banks. Interesting. Interesting. We only have a couple of minutes left, but uh, Dr. Prasad, I wanted to make sure we got to this uh, question. An anonymous user asked, where does the responsibility of maintaining privacy reside? And I, I thought your comment that anything that is digital is going to be traceable was really interesting. So maybe maybe you could take that question on. So in principle, the dual layer architecture that many countries, including the um, uh, Chinese are talking about is one where um, in principle, individuals will have transactional privacy, um, but ultimately, these uh, um, uh, transactions can be, can be unraveled by the central bank if necessary um, to make sure there is no um, uh, illicit activity being uh, intermediated through the digital currency. Um, uh, that is a, um, a reasonable proposition, but I think what we are learning is that even with um, cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, anonymity is really very difficult to guarantee. And even the new generation of cryptocurrencies like Monero and Zcash, which use what I technically call zero knowledge proofs, those two can be hacked. So I think the reality is that anything digital is ultimately going to be traceable. Um, I do want to mention one other thing related to um, the issues uh, about money and um, central banks in weaker economies um, losing out to the dollar. I think that is certainly um, something that has lit a fire under central banks in many countries, as Tobias mentioned, the notion that something like stable coin could end up displacing the domestic currencies. But there has been some concern about whether the Chinese digital currency could end up altering its role in the global monetary system. And some have gone so far as to say that China's digital currency may ultimately end up rivaling the dollar. I think not. Ultimately, if you think about something as a store of value, um, going back to comments that other panelists uh, have made, uh, it's ultimately about the trust in a central bank. And behind the central bank is an institutional framework that is very important as well. So just because China, China's currency becomes a, a digital currency is not going to alter its um, importance in the international monetary system. Most international transactions related to trade, finance are all digital already. Um, so that is not going to be um, a game changer really. Ultimately, it is going to be trust in the central bank that really wins the day. That is a really interesting point. And maybe we have we have just three minutes left here, but maybe I'll just open that that question up to our other panelists as well, because I think that's a really interesting question to walk off on is, you know, as we see projects like Libra evolve and obviously China's digital currency, is there a risk that it sort of remakes monetary dominance and the dollar's role in the global economy? Maybe if you want to go ahead and start. Yeah, I, I just want to say it's it, I, 
we have to understand that currencies aren't just currencies are competing on many different factors and the you know china's china's goal to with its currency is not a short-term plan it's a long-term plan um and so the question is uh you know in the next 50 years say can china start to provide some of that institutional certainty some of those deep capital markets can it start to build towards that and as it builds towards that will it be the case that its currency is easier to use and um well you know well liked by by citizens in different countries and um you know becomes a, a default mode of settlement so it, it's not the case that a, a digital currency is going to change the um the world's reserve currency instantaneously but these are these are trends these are all factors that have to be considered in aggregate and we have to look at where the trend is going Interesting. dr white yeah i don't see much uh, international adoption of the one and i don't think uh making holding one more convenient or transferring one more convenient is going to have a big impact if people don't trust the purchasing power of the one uh, there's a great you know network economy in using the medium of exchange the unit of account i should say that your trading partners use and so i think the dollar's dominance will continue and as long as the federal reserve maintains reasonable price stability uh, doesn't yeah and dr adrian if you could just finish this up yeah absolutely um i would i would add to the previous points that it's also the depth of capital markets uh, that matters right i mean the us is is it's it's not just the currency but it's also the equity markets the bond markets uh where uh, the dollar is is dominant and um uh you know uh uh the euro uh, is, of course, the other uh, competitor, right? I, I, I was just reading this morning that actually in terms of transaction volumes uh, this year, the euro is, is, is slightly higher than, uh, than the dollar. Um, but it, it doesn't have quite the same depth of capital markets uh, as the US. But, uh, you know, in the, in the short term, these things don't change. But in the medium term, absolutely, things can change, right? Over five years, they might not, but over 50 years, they can. And, uh, I think in this debate uh, on the digital currencies, you really do want to take a, a longer term uh, view as well. Uh, so you absolutely want to build a system that is both absolutely trustworthy, but is also able uh, to uh, uh, to innovate going forward. And um, you know, one one aspect that hasn't come up yet is that. Uh, there are today globally, when you look globally, there are many weaknesses in the payment system. Uh, you know, uh, many uh, people around the world, including even in the US, remain unbanked uh, and remain outside of the financial system. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, one of the promise of digitalization is that uh, the barrier to entry into the financial system is lower. All you need is a, is a smartphone or, or even a, a basic cell phone might be able to, to allow you uh, to have access uh, to finance. And uh, so that transformative uh, power of being part of financial services is really something that we have seen in, in some uh, developing economies as being a tremendous contributor to good things. Uh, and so this is one aspect, but then of course, there will be a lot of very sophisticated innovation going on. And so you want to build a system that is totally trustworthy but that allows uh, innovation, allows the pri uh, private sector uh, to innovate, 
yet have the backstop of being able to be convertible into something very safe, like uh, central bank reserves in, in dollars or euros. So, so these are so like squaring all of that uh, is, is, I think, what the debate is about today. Right, right. Great. Well, I think we are actually over time. Um, so we will wrap it up with that. Thank you to all of our panelists for joining. This has been a really interesting discussion. Um, we are now headed for a 15 minute break. So actually a 13 minute break, we stole two of your minutes. Um, after which there will be time for, uh, it's gonna be time for the second panel of the day, which is digital currency and civil liberties. Um, so thank you all for joining us.